Director, ladies and gentlemen, distinct, uh, welcome very much. Well, sorry, adjusting the microphone and speaking at the same time. What's a challenge for an academic? <laughs> uh, welcome to this evening's uh, lecture. This evening's lecture is part of a series organized by the European Institute here at the London School of Economics. And uh, the lecture is also being live streamed uh, as we speak. So I'm welcoming not only those of you present, but those watching online as well. Let me also say that uh, in due course, the lecture will be available to download as a podcast. Now, this lecture series uh, seeks to address some of the major questions faced by Europe as a whole. And who can doubt uh, the importance of discussing uh, the Eurozone, the performance of the Euro, and perhaps the prospects of the Euro? Uh, every day, some 340 million Europeans use this uh, currency. And of course, uh, this has got major implications for the monetary and economic policies uh, by which they're governed. A project which began as economic and monetary union is still grappling with what kind of balance to draw between these two dimensions, and that is what kind of architecture uh, to establish for the governance of the Eurozone. Now, we've all lived through the headlines of the Euro crisis, at least until a short while ago, many thought the Euro regime would not survive. Leading economists in North America, uh, the UK, uh, insisted that the Euro was doomed. The European economies were too diverse to live together under a single monetary policy. Europe was locked into one-size-fits-all austerity, and the growth of the Eurozone seemed to be quite miserable. In fact, at the time, the Anglo-Saxon world seemed to be doing better. To get out of the crisis, it was argued, Europe needed a full fiscal union. But as this would be politically unacceptable, the euro itself was doomed. In short, there was much pessimism about the performance and the prospects of the euro. Well, of course, Time has moved on, and the euro as a currency seems safer, and the growth in the eurozone is higher than that of uh, the UK. Now, for much of the recent past, our speaker tonight, Jeroen Dijsselblom, has been at the very centre of the action. A trained economist, he became Minister of Finance in the Netherlands in 2012 and President of the Eurogroup uh, from 2013. This has involved him in many of the major issues, uh, the European Banking Union, the EU's Fiscal Pact of 2012, the continuing debates over fiscal governance, and it also meant, of course, in 2015 that he had the undoubted pleasure of working with the then Greek Finance Minister, Yanis Varoufakis. They didn't get, they didn't get on very well. <laughs> Following the Dutch elections, Jeroen uh, Dijsselbaum has now stepped down as minister and his term is ending as president of the Eurogroup. So it is, uh, we think, an appropriate point in time uh, for him to reflect on his experience, to share his wisdom, lessons to be drawn from the recent past as we contemplate the Eurozone's uh, future. 
I can see a number of students from the European Institute here in the audience. Uh, they, others, of course, are studying the politics of the Eurozone. And uh, tonight's lecture complements very much the, their studies. And dare I say, I think it is part of the unique experience of being a student at the London School of Economics that we are privileged to have uh, such speakers uh, as this evening. So, uh, you can follow tonight's event uh, on Twitter. I believe there is a hashtag. Yes, there's a hashtag uh, behind me. Uh, and we will uh, welcome your, um, your comments. Uh, what we're going to do is um, Jeroen will speak for about 20 minutes. I will then ask uh, some questions on stage and we'll ensure that there's plenty of time for questions and comments uh, from the uh, audience. So to get us underway, can you please join me in giving a very warm welcome to the London School of Economics for Jeroen uh, Dejelbaum. Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for your introduction. Um, this is my speech, so I'll try to be short because it's my experience, certainly with an audience like you, who uh, undoubtedly will have lots of questions, uh, that it's much more interesting to, to spend time doing Q&A &A, uh, than listening passively to, uh, to me. So... Um, I've been in the job for uh, five years, and will, tomorrow will actually be my last day. So anything you, I say tonight, you can immediately forget, because at the end of tomorrow there will be a new chair of the Eurogroup, and he may have completely different ideas. Um, but that also allows me to speak uh, uh, freely. Um, it's a completely different phase we're in now compared to five years ago. When I became a minister at the end of 2012, it was at the depth of the, uh, what was called the Euro crisis. I still feel that that name is wrong, but we'll forget about that. Um, we were in a renegotiation of the second Greek program. All the assumptions for Greece had turned out to be wrong, to be too optimistic. Things were going even worse than everyone had expected. More money was needed. Uh, all the uh, growth assumptions were adjusted, etc. It was a very uh, difficult uh, situation. Um, at home, I had, to re uh, I had to nationalize one of our major banks at the beginning of 2013. And a couple of weeks later, uh, the Cypriot banking system, which was completely overblown, much too large and high risk uh, for the small uh, island economy, the Irish, uh, the Cypriot banking system uh, almost collapsed and we had to put together a program for, for Cyprus. And this is how things uh, kept going at the uh, beginning. And indeed, um, in the Anglo-Saxon world, uh, there was uh, broad agreement that the euro was a stillborn project. It would not come off the ground. It was a bad idea from the start usually pessimistic. I used to go to IMF uh, meetings um, where I also met your director. I used to go to IMF meetings uh, where the Eurozone was criticized from every corner, from the emerging markets, from the US, from China, and basically there were 
beating me up, saying, look, what are you doing to sort it out? Get it done. And they were right. Uh, now it's a completely different situation. Um, and 2017 has basically exceeded every expectation. The growth expectations for the Eurozone uh, and for the individual countries were revised upward almost every quarter. The last quarter, growth in the Eurozone, on average, was above 3%. Um, and good figures, even in the FT, are coming out on a daily basis. The FT, even to my surprise, got me a little worried, started talking about the Euro boom. <laughs> and you're all e economists, you know what follows a boom. So that got me a little uh, worried. But that's this sharp contrast that we have between five years ago and where we are uh, now. Um, I won't say a lot about Greece because usually I get lots of questions about Greece. I won't say a lot about Italian banks. They're being sorted out, uh, which is a good thing, but you can ask me questions about uh, uh, that. I want to go to uh, what should be done in the coming years. Um, there are basically two challenges still for the Eurozone. One is to make the economies, the economies of the Eurozone more competitive. Uh, productivity is still extremely uh, low. Uh, investments, even though stronger, uh, are low. And the competitiveness needs to be improved. The second thing is uh, shock absorption. If there were to be a crisis in the Eurozone within the next year or two years, we would not be able to deal with it. That's how I see it. Simply because, you know, there's an expression, you should fix the roof uh, while the sun is shining. To be able to do that, you need to have tools in your toolkit. And one of our biggest problems is that national governments, but also monetary authorities, have more or less run out of tools. They've used them all. So lots of governments in the Eurozone still don't have a lot of fiscal space to react if there were to be an economic shock. Monetary authorities have used their monetary tools to the max. Uh, so we need to use this time to not just fix the roof, uh, but also to refill the toolkit. So those two things, improving the economies and competitiveness uh, of Europe and preparing for the next crisis, becoming more shock resilient, um, is uh, the key things that need to happen. Um, when you look at growth at the moment, it's interesting to see that it's not just good growth figures, it's much higher than what the potential growth for uh, Europe and the Eurozone uh, could uh, be expected. Uh, it's also broad-based, which is good and positive. It's broad-based because its exports have increased, uh, investments uh, are picking up, and consumer demand uh, is, uh, is uh, picking up everywhere. Government spending, not so much beginning to improve in some countries, but other countries still have to sort out some fiscal uh, issues. The fact that it's broad-based is good, uh, gives me some confidence that it is uh, possibly sustainable growth. Personally, I'm not interested in creating growth by simply over-crediting the uh, economy uh, or over-consumption. I'm interested in growth that is sustainable from two angles, environmental and sustainable in a sense that it really comes from real economic development. 
current growth that we're seeing in the Eurogroup and the Eurozone uh, seems to have that characteristic because it's broad-based, because investments are picking up, uh, and it's not just uh, based on uh, credit to uh, consumption. Um, so what needs to happen to improve the competitiveness and to make sure that this current growth uh, is really sustainable, that it, it's maintained, that we can uphold it over a longer period? first point would still be, I know a lot of people when they talk about the future of the monetary union immediately go to, ah, we must have a eurozone budget, fiscal capacity. So what they're saying is the solution to strengthen the monetary union, to strengthen the eurozone, we need public funds at European level. So let's take two steps back. I think, first of all, the main responsibility for sound policies are still the responsibility uh, the responsibility of member states. The total budgets of the member states are 50 times the budget of the EU. The number of instruments, macroeconomic policy instruments, in the hands of member states are much bigger, much stronger than the policy instruments at an EU level. So the real responsibility to improve competitiveness, to do structural reforms, to improve how your labor market works, to make your pension system sustainable, to improve the investment climate, etc. The main responsibility for those topics are still at national level. So that will be my first point. This reform drive, well-designed, different per country, politically complex, but this reform drive must continue. Second, I think there's still a lot of potential for markets to be helpful. So the functioning of markets in the Eurozone is still, mm, could be much better. I think uh, at EU level we could improve, deepen, broaden the internal market. Um, we could finish the banking union, which I've put a lot of time in to establish that. I think it's been a crucial element in the economic recovery for the Eurozone, but it's not finished. Um, cross-border investments in the banking sector are still very limited. And on top of that, we really must create a capital markets union, which is about um, diversifying finance to our corporate sector throughout the Eurozone. We're still very much bank-dependent. There is still uh, little um, uh, equity and much more uh, lending from banks to our corporate sector. That needs to be diversified. That was also one of the risks that came out uh, over the course of this crisis. Um, if we do that, markets can play a, a bigger role. Uh, on top of that, yes, there needs to be a reform of the monetary union itself. As I already mentioned, first thing to do, priority, which everyone agrees about, is completing the banking union. We had a Eurozone summit, a leader summit in December, and uh, proposed by President Macron, the leaders distinguished between the topics that were roughly agreed and the topics that are still very controversial. So in the basket, roughly agreed is let's finish the banking union. That requires a backstop to the resolution fund for banks. It requires lots of um, um, legislation and implementation on capital requirements. It requires uh, also an EDIS, which is the European Deposit Insurance Scheme, to really in reinstall confidence of deposit holders throughout Europe. All of that needs to be done. And the leaders have put that in the basket, roughly agreed, let's do it. So that was good, positive. 
Second thing that the leaders said that was roughly agreed is the ESM, the Emergency Fund, uh, the European Stability Mechanism, has done such great work that we should expand on what they do. In the future, they should manage the emergency programs for countries in the future. They could provide that credit line to the Resolution Fund. And possibly even they could help countries find to finance countries that are in a reform program or in a reform drive. So that was also in the basket, roughly agreed, get on with it. The basket, uh, very controversial still, is certainly the new fiscal instruments uh, like a fiscal capacity for the Eurozone. And as I said, I think if, we, if national governments take their responsibility and keep up their effort to modernize their economies and their public sector, their tax systems, etc., uh, if we allow markets to, to have that shock absorption function, um, I don't think we will need a huge fiscal capacity. But I think um, there is a theory behind it, and we need to address it. When I'm at, at LSE, we need to discuss also the theory behind the, the strong conviction that the monetary union will never function without a, uh, a, a budget, a strong fiscal capacity. And this is the, uh, the theory of Robert Mundell, who spoke about the optimal currency uh, area theory. So he said, if you have a joint currency, uh, you have the advantage, of course, of getting rid of all these exchange rates, risks, and costs. Uh, but you have the disadvantage that you cannot, can no longer, at least as an individual member state, can no longer manipulate the exchange rate to improve your competitiveness. So this is true. And his point was that... Um, uh, the balance between the advantage and the disadvantage of having the common currency uh, will only be positive if there is enough flexibility in adjustments within the currency union uh, on wages and prices. Um, if there is enough um, shock absorption by private risk sharing, in other words, if markets allow risks to be transferred within the currency union, uh, and finally, if there is a joint fiscal capacity. Now, in all our discussions about the future of the monetary union, many people just talk about the fiscal capacity. But Mandel spoke about, uh, also about opening up markets, allowing, uh, for, no, first of all, uh, to make sure that there is the possibility of wage and price adjust uh, adjustments, and this is possible and does happen. We've seen that in the last uh, eight years very clearly in the monetary union. Secondly, we should allow uh, markets to absorb shocks. So that means uh, creating one capital market. That's why the capital markets union and the banking union are so important. They can be part of making that monetary union uh, enough flexible, uh, being able to absorb shocks. But it could also be about uh, labor markets, opening up labor markets within the monetary union, within the eurozone, allowing people to move around to find the work where it is at a certain point. And if there is an adverse shock in one area, that people can move to other countries uh, for the time uh, being. So let's not make the mistake that only a fiscal capacity, a large eurozone budget, will save us uh, in, the, uh, in the future. 
let's remember all the elements that Mondell uh, pointed out if we want to make the monetary union strong in uh, the future. Finally, let re let's return to politics. Um, President Macron has uh, come in in uh, France, uh, very pro-European, uh, aggressively pushing uh, reforms also for the monetary union. We, of course, have to wait the outcome of the German uh, coalition talks. My best guess is that the Grosse Coalition will come and that it will be quite pro-European. There will be a French-German deal on uh, the reform of Europe. It will not just be about monetary union. If you listen carefully to the President Macron, he always puts security, <coughs> migration, fighting terrorism in the first, uh, and also defense in his first part uh, of his story and reform of the monetary union in the second part. But it will be part of the uh, French-German agenda. Their agreement between... Uh, Bundeskanzlerin Merkel and President Macron is that in March already they will find that common ground, uh, there will be an extra Eurozone summit in March, and in June uh, the leaders want to have decisions. So it's interesting times for Europe, very much based on the, the optimistic sense that there is now. Um, it's an opportunity to complete the things that we've done to make it stronger, uh, lots of responsibility still for member states, but also a lot of topics that we can address together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. That was uh, very interesting. Um, I take your point that the uh, main lesson going forward is that uh, national governments... Uh, should bear the responsibility for uh, encouraging the competitiveness of their uh, domestic economies, and that uh, along the way there should be new EU policies which expose them to market pressures, e.g. a capital uh, union. If we look at the record of EU member states, for example, since the Lisbon programme of 2000, you'd have to uh, note that a number of member states have been laggards in reform, and a number of those laggards entered into the euro crisis, needed bailouts. Yeah. What happens in your scenario if national governments don't reform? It happens. Yeah. So um, the easy answer would be we need a European finance minister who can then step in and force them to reform. Uh, I don't believe that's possible, and I don't think we should want it. Already there are issues of democratic legitimacy of the work we do in the Eurogroup, uh, but if a European minister from Brussels would tell the Italians to finally sort out their, let's say, pension system, um, I, I think that would uh, cause a huge political riot in Italy. And the same is true for the Netherlands, the same is true uh, for any country. So what did happen in that period was that um, at the start of the monetary union, the period you spoke about, um, money in a number of countries became very cheap. It was all very easy. So the, econo the economic situation was very positive in the years before 2008. Money was very cheap, and we completely overcredited the economy. Households, companies, uh, blew up banking systems everywhere, took on huge risks, 
so what we need to do is to make sure that in the uh, first of all you need to realize the kind of reforms that already have been done. So the OECD does interesting reports on this, objectifying what country is actually doing reforms, are they substantial, are they relevant? Yes. Um, and the OECD has been quite positive about the work that's been done in a number of countries. Some simply had to do it because they were in a program and the Troika made them do it, etc. In reality, the circumstances forced them to finally start sorting out some of the problems. Um, uh, other countries did it uh, on a more voluntary basis, like the Netherlands. We did lots of reforms uh, in the last cabinet period, not because we were in a program, because, but because we realized we had really neglected some of the structural issues in our economy, the housing market, the pension system, the costs of health care, etc. And at the current uh, point, President Macron is doing very important reforms, uh, on a variety of topics um, without the markets really forcing him, yet he's doing it. Uh, the Renzi government and the Gentiloni government um, have been pushing reforms across a broad agenda. Of course, Mr. Berlusconi is saying that he will reverse some of it, uh, but I hope that won't happen. <laughs> so um, even without current market pressure, there is a new atmosphere, a new sense of urgency around the topic of yes. reforms in Europe. That would seem to me to be a little contingent, that uh, there's the voluntarism of individual governments agreeing to the reforms that you're, you're seeking. Uh, but part of your argument is that we should put in place at the European level uh, reforms which expose market pressure yep. on domestic governments to, the, to the full yeah. force. Yeah. I suppose the uh, natural question is why should uh, governments with perhaps more statist traditions, with a kind of internal protectionism of their markets, why should they at the European level vote for the kind of uh, EU reforms that you're seeking? Well I think there is a trade-off here uh, for example in the banking union, we have an interesting debate now on risk sharing and um, risk reduction. So there are those countries that are saying, well, look, we still have risks in our banking sector. Please, can we share them with you by having common funds uh, to support banks and uh, uh, insurance systems that would insure uh, and save our deposit holders? Other countries will say, well, that's all very well, but you still have huge risks in your banks. You have non-performing loans. You have uh, overbanked uh, uh, situations, much too many banks, too many risks. Let's address those. Uh, I think negotiating the banking union has learned me, should I say taught me, has taught me um, to uh, address those two simultaneously. Okay. So there is no option in my mind to stop here and to say, okay, well, this is it. Um, if we want market, markets to function better, we should really allow these risks to be priced, uh, and we should make sure that private investors understand that if things do go wrong in the future, they will pay the price. They will be bailed in. Introducing those kind of mechanisms will allow us to have a stronger uh, banking system in which risks are priced well, in which markets do play their part, 
but also telling governments, because uh, if investors know that they have to pay part of uh, the bill when things go wrong, they will uh, also pay, uh, ask a higher price for banks in countries that make a mess of it. They will uh, ask a higher price if that government then comes to them to borrow more money. Okay. So uh, by, I think, one of the key mistakes that was made at the beginning of the crisis, and I say this reluctantly because I wasn't there at the beginning of the crisis. It was a huge crisis. It was panic. Uh, and um, my predecessor had to take difficult decisions in the most difficult circumstances. But what they did was they bailed out uh, the asset holders. They bailed out the investors at the expense of taxpayers. And that was not just done in Greece. That was done everywhere. Also in Ireland, left Ireland with a huge sovereign debt. Also in the Netherlands, the big banks in the Netherlands were all saved uh, and supported with taxpayers' money. We shouldn't allow that to happen. Not for economic reasons is wrong. Uh, not for social reasons, for political reasons. Uh, it's the wrong approach. Okay, I wonder, you've mentioned the bailouts in the, the recent past. I wonder, when you reflect on your period as president of the Eurogroup, as a Dutch Social Democrat, how comfortable life was politically with um, a German leadership, order liberal approach, Wolfgang Schäuble uh, in particular. I couldn't help but notice your friend Yanis Varoufakis uh, said uh, this year uh, Dejelblom has no authority, he's a soldier a puppet, he can't make any decisions without calling Schäuble he's a cog in a machine that doesn't, he doesn't understand there was absolutely no reason for me to speak with uh, him because he was neither willing nor able to have a real discussion now that's, that's, actually, that's actually quite friendly, usually he <laughs> Usually he adds to that that I'm only a simple agricultural economist, which is true, by the way, <laughs> and I'm proud of it. There you are. There's another agricultural economist here. Yeah. But so, if, yeah. if we're looking for intellectual depth in this comment, if, then I guess uh, his uh, serious point is that uh, is there a difficulty built into the governance of the Eurozone in having such a strong anchor economy like Germany, with a particular approach to uh, the euro and basically auto-liberal uh, paradigm, well, one that other eurozone members don't necessarily buy into, and uh, doesn't that make uh, compromised leadership difficult for someone such as yourself? As you, have to, you have to understand that... Um Janos Varoufakis had no respect for anyone in the Eurogroup but Wolfgang Schäuble. Um, and that, I think, was just because of an argument of power, at least his perception of how things worked. Um, but in the Eurogroup, uh, it's one man or one woman, one vote. All member states can block uh, or veto any program, any support, any loan uh, to any country. And from the outside world, the um, impression is always that the Germans are the toughest. I can assure you, and I've been through all these meetings, 
that in some of these meetings Wolfgang Schäuble didn't even speak and the toughest were the ministers from the countries whose GDP per capita was lower than the Greek GDP because in, in our thinking we see Greece as the poorest country in the Eurozone it's not true there are uh, four or five countries that have a lower GDP per capita than uh, Greece those ministers also had to go home and to say look we've got to chip in again to support Greece again with loans that we are uh, standing guarantee for coming from us uh, and there was very little understanding in for example the Baltic countries uh, when in the time that we were negotiating with uh, the Syriza government Yana Varoufakis would tell us in the Eurogroup that he wanted to increase the minimum wage now, as a social democrat, I may think that's a sympathetic idea, but given the recession in Greece, I didn't think economically it was a very good idea. But independent of that, I remember one of the Baltic ministers saying uh, in the Eurogroup, look, this is all very well. Do you realize what the minimum wage is in my country? And it was about a third of the minimum wage in Greece. I would love to increase the minimum wage in my country with 250 euros, but I can't afford it. So this whole idea, it was just Germany dominating okay. everything okay. and telling us what should be done, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of the kind of debates we had in the Eurogroup. But isn't there a deeper point in the sense that, uh, for example, at Maastricht, when the treaty was originally um, established, there was a kind of acceptance that Europe had many different policy traditions different approaches to economic policy, different approaches to monetary policy. Yeah. Maastricht is not an expression of undiluted order liberalism by any stretch of the imagination. Since that point, it would seem that in the crisis since 2010 and in your period, overwhelmingly the uh, policy focus has uh, been, been more narrow less accommodating to well-established, long-term European traditions and has narrowed down to a more auto-liberal German response. No, Isn't I, that I, a problem for I don't agree. legitimacy and people's buy-in, Europeans' buy-in? Isn't that a problem for, for Europeans when they uh, are used to different policy traditions? Sure, and those different policy traditions... Uh, are still possible. But there's, you have to, if you go back to uh, Maastricht, you have to realize that there was a big political decision then, which was, okay, we will tie in Germany into Europe. The way to do that, as a political decision, is to create a currency area, one common currency. Um, part of the deal would be an independent monetary policy, rather German tradition, also very Dutch, by the way, um, and part of the deal is there will be no bailouts of countries. If you make a mess of it in fiscal terms, uh, you have to s save yourself. Now, of course, if we had really... That was a, a German wish, of course. We're not taking on your risks. Yes. If you have bad policies, that's your problem. That very German wish was put aside quite early in the crisis because it was simply not, not possible countries were going over the edge, losing access to financial markets, um, 
uh, and uh, quite early in the um, euro crisis, uh, it was agreed that we should help countries pull them away from the edge, first by bilateral loans, then we set up the, the temporary EFSF uh, fund, uh, and now the structural uh, European stability mechanism, um, which uh, is a huge international financial institution in, in size of what they can do, what they can pull out of markets if needed. So the original dogma, we will not bail you out, has been left. Okay. So therefore, I tend to disagree with you that it's all very German and it's been very tough and, uh, on other countries. What actually happened was, but this already happened in 2003, so before the crisis, um, that the, the, the fiscal rules that had been agreed at that point were then neglected by Germany, first of all. And once Germany had said, oh, well, forget about the fiscal rules, we, we can't use them now, then France ignored it, and then all the other countries ignored them. Yes. In a period in which um, uh, credit was very cheap, uh, credit which in a number of countries was not used to invest in productive sectors of the economy, but was used either for consumption or to even further pump up the boom in real estate and housing market like in Spain. Um, so forgetting about fiscal discipline in this kind of environment, low interests, credit boom, the sky is the limit, was a very dangerous thing. Okay. Uh, and we're trying to restore some of that discipline indeed. Then one final word, if I may. A lot of people, economists also criticizing the strategy of the Eurozone said it's all about austerity. And that's simply not true. Um, it was a broader uh, uh, strategy. Of course, there was the accommodative monetary stance. Uh, there were structural reforms throughout our member states. I mean, everyone was trying to sort out the structural issues. Um, everyone was, um, uh, sorry, jointly, we, uh, first of all, in the first phase, individual member states were trying to sort out their banks. Didn't work out very well. And then jointly we set up the banking union and dealt with the financial sector. So all of these things were happening at the same time. And yes, member states also had to sort out their fiscal issues. Because simply if you lose access to markets, if your sovereign debt is jumping up, you need to address that issue. Uh, there is no fiscal space to invest yourself out of the crisis okay. at that point. From the political uh, aspects, I think your point about the difficulties of legitimacy, accountability of the EU level intervening at the domestic uh, system to uh, bail out or reform is extremely difficult. Europe has never before intervened with a troika or a task force to try to uh, support, encourage uh, reform. This raises a whole new set of questions about choice, accountability, legitimacy. And you mentioned about Europe being uh, solidaristic uh, in this context. I wonder in that context, I saw, I've been reading about you a lot, uh, I saw that uh, I think on Dutch TV this last year uh, you were referring to the problems of the South and he said during the crisis of the Euro, the countries of the North have shown solidarity with the countries affected by the crisis. 
As a social democrat, I attribute exceptional importance to solidarity, then the key sentence. But you also have obligations. You cannot spend uh, all the money on drinks and women and then ask for help. Now, this didn't go unnoticed in Athens, as you can imagine. <laughs> and the Greek prime minister responded by saying, there are some, there are some, who want to hide the economic inequality that neoliberalism has caused behind a non-existent cultural separation. They do it by resorting to ridiculous stereotypes and a biased rhetoric of prudent North and irresponsible South. Instead of stupid statements for drinks and women, Dejelblum should better ask Germany to increase its public expenditure. Mm. As, a, as a social democrat... Mm. Is Alexis Tsipras wrong? Yes, he's wrong. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So um, what I said, this was actually a quote from an interview from the Frankfurter Allgemeine, German newspaper. It is, sorry, yes. um, uh, but it is my deep conviction now. The use of words could have been more subtle. <laughs> I, I will uh, accept that. It was a, it's a very, perhaps a very Dutch way of putting things, but it was considered... No, uh, but I regret that when fe people feel insulted by things, I always regret that. That's, of okay. course, not my intention. The point I want to make, and as a social democrat, I very strongly believe in this, you can only have sustainable solidarity, ask for solidarity over a long period of time with an extended group of people, if there is some understanding of what people uh, should do in return and what they should not do, responsibility, sticking to agreements, etc., uh, and if you don't do that, I mean, things happen. But if you don't do that in a sort of structural, uh, it, uh, I, I can't defend solidarity, and it will erode. And I'm very convinced of that. Now, I made it very explicit in the way I formulated I talked about myself. Why did I do that? I said, if I misbehave, I cannot expect solidarity. Why did I put it that way? Because it's not about the North and the South. Uh, this was how it was understood because in the way it was written down that the sentences were quite close to one another. <laughs> but my point is the same point I make in the Netherlands. I defend, in the Netherlands we have a very strong social welfare system but I'm aggressively against social fraud. I'm ag aggressively against people who will not put in the effort to do what they can to contribute to society because I believe that only if everyone puts in their best, we can uphold solidarity in the healthcare system, in unemployment benefit schemes, etc. It's also true in the Netherlands. And um, in the Netherlands, I'm also known as a conservative social democrat. Conservative in this sort of uh, traditional way of looking at the welfare society. Uh, that's how I see it. Um, by the way, my relationship with Alexis Tsipras is very good and I'll tell you why <laughs> I'll tell you why because uh, in all the crises that we had with Greece uh, I didn't have a lot of success with um, the, the former finance minister uh, but we always sorted it out and kept Greece in the Eurozone because I worked together with Alexis Tsipras Fine, you got on well with uh, you got on well with Alexis Tsipras and not so well with Yanis Varoufakis I think you've also said uh, publicly that you encouraged Alexis Tsipras to sack Yanis Varoufakis. 
It was a little more subtle than that. <laughs> um, you have to realize, this always happens, we spend too much time talking about this former colleague. He was only a minister for five months. I was in the job for five years. I worked with six finance ministers from Greece. In those five months, in the course of 2014, the Greek economy was picking up. They had growth again, unemployment was going down, investors were returning to Greece. Yes. But in the five months that I worked with Yanis Varoufakis, uh, Greek population ran to the bank to pull out their money. Investors fled from the country, and the economy went down very, very rapidly. Um, so um, during all of this, we were in the Eurogroup, and I think we had something like 22 Eurogroup meetings in that five months. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Some were on the phone, but... Eurogroup after Eurogroup, and we were not making any progress. Uh, and in the end, I know people think that I don't get along with Yanis Varoufakis, but I never considered it a personal problem. It was a, it was a problem of trust between the finance ministers in the Eurogroup and this one colleague. And um, we hit rock bottom during a Eurogroup in um, Latvia, if I remember, in Riga. Uh, the atmosphere was terrible. We made absolutely no progress. Um, and colleagues in the Eurogroup were starting to talk about Plan B. They didn't have to spell it out, but that was, of course, about Grexit. They were giving up on Greece, and I thought that was a terrible thing. So, yes, after that Eurogroup, I did call Alexis Tsipras, and I simply explained to him the situation. I said, the trust in the Eurogroup between the ministers and your minister is at rock bottom, I don't see how I can get deals. I don't see how I can get people to accept some of the things and the compromises that they have to accept. So uh, please, uh, can you uh, look at this issue? And he did. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that's uh, more than enough from me. There's time for uh, questions uh, from the audience. We have uh, colleagues with uh, microphones. Um, when it's your turn to ask a question, could you simply please briefly say who you are and then go straight to the question? And with your agreement, we'll take perhaps uh, three questions at a time. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll take notes. Uh, uh, okay. Um, fine. Could we take the uh, gentleman uh, here in the middle, please, at the front? One, two, three. Hello. Thank you very much for your um, presentation today. I appreciate it. Um, I was just um, listening to you, and it seems to me that the Eurozone is characterized and has been characterized by a prolonged period of very difficult decisions, um, big problems. Um, for example, the poverty that's been imposed upon um, the Mediterranean members of the Eurozone. Um, maybe I should not say imposed, but... Uh, uh, that they've experienced, particularly in the, the young people of those, those economies. Um, and I just wonder if it's time to step back and um, take a, a fresh look at whether we actually need a single currency anymore. But, because, for example, um, the original intent of the single currency was to, as I understand it, solve, uh, make the market more efficient and solve inefficiencies like, you know, moving from one currency regime to another and then having to pay fees and ending up with change in your pocket, hasn't technology made that problem redundant? As, as long as we've got um, an e electronic 
um, system of exchange um, and a, a good market so that we can end up with a, an efficient mechanism, doesn't that solve the problem? And all these problems go away. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Can you just say who you are? Uh, ben Aston. Thank you. From the LSE? Uh, I'm just a private citizen. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> so am I. From, from, from England. I'd never, re- I'd never realised there were such people, but I'm sure there must be. Uh, okay. Um, could we take the uh, gentleman here, please, in the brown shirt? Thank you. Um, Considering the rather critical IMF report that came out at the beginning of 2017, I think... You're also a private citizen? I'm at LSE, actually. I'm a private citizen from the Netherlands, so you'd probably like that. (laughs) um, I recognise the accent, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not too difficult. But um, considering the rather critical report from the IMF, do you have any serious regrets with regard to your uh, approach to the Greek crisis? Yep. Good, thank you. And uh, the gentleman here, please. Private citizen from Germany um, this time. We talked a lot about small countries, but uh, rather less about the biggest one. Um, I'm interested, having experienced many years now of German growth, to begin to wonder whether German growth is now not reaching its limits Um, because of uh, the skill shortages, demography of Germany, um, and what might happen if Germany stops growing at the rate that it does at a time when the rest of Europe is growing, and what will be the responsibility then of monetary authorities and fiscal authorities with respect to Germany under those circumstances? Because what one might see is that one wants to put the brake on the rest of Europe, but this means putting the brake on Germany at a time when Germany is already slowing down. And what happens if the biggest economy in the Eurozone actually has brakes put on it like that? Okay, thanks. So, three fairly fundamental questions. Right, so, the first one... Um, um, let me see. Up here, do we need a single yes, currency? Yes, indeed, sir. Um, you talked about imposed on... Uh, and it was and it wasn't imposed. It was a condition, let's be honest. Uh, countries were in desperate need of uh, supportive loans, uh, cheap loans, uh, and they go with conditions. So in that sense, it, these were imposed. It wasn't a free choice. We have to be honest about this. Um, has it uh, affected young people? Yes, unemployment for the young is extremely high in some countries. You have to realize that it was already very high even in the very good years in Spain, sometimes the youth unemployment ran up to 20%. Um, and this has to do with the way the labor market is organized in Spain. It's very difficult for young people to get in. And that's very different in different countries. So there are lessons to be learned. And I hope that's why labor market reform, quite a bit has already been done in Spain, but I would hope that they would go a little further because the youth unemployment is still very high. And uh, so your question was, do we still need a common uh, currency given technology? I don't have the full answer to that. I would hope that the LSE could f- look through the current technological developments and answer that question for you. What I do know is, and a lot of people have forgotten about this, um, the number of um, uh, currency crises which we had in the 80s and the 90s. 
mean, there was also a sound economic reason why people then were so interested in having that common currency area. Markets uh, speculated against the pound, against the French franc, against the Italian lira time and time again, uh, and this went on and on. At a huge economic cost, it was really damaging to countries, to the economic development. Um, so uh, a lot of people have forgotten about that, but right until, let's say, 1997, there were currency crises going through Europe all the time at uh, very high economic uh, costs. If we get rid of the common uh, currency, will that for sure return? I don't know. I'm just, I re remember one of the economic reasons. It wasn't just a political decision. There was certainly a very strong political reason. There was also very sound economic reasoning given all these currency crises uh, that we had. Whether the new technology uh, 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 will make sure that that doesn't happen for sure in the future, uh, that's an interesting project for the LSE to look into. Um, do I have regrets uh, on uh, uh, Greece? Um, uh, yes, many. Um, first of all, I already mentioned that the way that throughout Europe, by the way, we dealt with banks, bailing them out at the expense of taxpayers, uh, again, given those circumstances, let's not be too harsh. I mean, it's easy to have a judgment, you know, with how high, having the wisdom of hindsight. Uh, but uh, let's not go down that road ever again. It's a huge um, negative, perverse incentive for the financial sector. We will always be bailed out by governments. For investors, oh, we'll always get our money back. So it has huge uh, negative economic aspects because risks are not priced. Uh, it has huge uh, social impact because the taxpayers in Ireland, in Greece, etc., are still dealing with that huge debt um, but um, so I think that was the wrong approach um, um, I, I, I'll, I'll also mention one that happened on my clock I think that um, we allowed too many of the difficult measures to be sort of at the end of the program so when the second program came to an end this was uh, at the end of fourteen. Uh, there were still lots of difficult, controversial stuff to do. And the Samaras government uh, simply didn't have the political nerve or strength uh, to push through those difficult things. So the second program, over time, just faded out. But some of the very important stuff still needed to be done. Um, that's one lesson that we did learn. If you have a reform program and there will always be difficult, unpopular stuff in there, please do it right at the beginning, get it over with, get it done, and allow the economy to recover. Can I just ask, because the gentleman referred to the participation of the IMF and the IMF uh, report, one of the things the IMF was saying that was that the simple mechanism of the Troika uh, compromised politically the IMF and its uh, assessments, its technical assessments in terms of debt sustainability and that there was an institutional problem with the IMF joining a Eurozone uh, Troika arrangement. Would you share that, um, that sense that there is a lesson to be learned as to how Europe might collaborate with the IMF 
in some future uh, yeah. arrangements. So I don't know whether the internal um, frameworks or rules or criteria of the IMF were compromised. If that's the analysis of the IMF itself, then I'll leave it at that. But indeed, it was, given the circumstances, I mean, it was a crisis with an impact we'd not seen for almost a century. Um, uh, given the, the setup, there was no... I mean, you have to realize the beginning of the crisis, it was all improvisation. In Europe, there was no emergency fund. There was no framework how to deal with this. There was no institution that had the expertise and experience to deal with this kind of in-depth crisis. Yes. So that's why the IMF was brought in, but had to work with the Commission and the ECB, um, and that was the Troika. These different institutions had different responsibilities, had different frameworks, so the the ECB would look at banks and financial stability. The Commission would look at fiscal rules and macroeconomic situation. That's it. So that made it, of course, very complex. And compromise on compromise was made, not just with the member states, uh, but also between the institutions. I had to put quite a bit of uh, time in uh, during these years, um, uh, time spent on bringing the institutions together which is, of course, hugely inefficient. We lost a lot of time because the different institutions didn't agree on what would be the next step and how to do it and how to design it. That's why I would be in favor for Europe, in case of a new crisis or a new program for a country, that the uh, ESM, the new emergency fund, they now have that experience. Let's organize it there in one place, and they can lead these kind of uh, programs. Okay. Uh, There's the question about Germany and, and Ah, yes. So um, the German growth continues. Um, I heard uh, some very strong figures again uh, uh, today. Um, Demographics don't tell us everything, surprisingly. Um, If demographics were right, Europe would have about 1% growth, and we are above 3. So, uh, and I don't think it's very useful anymore, but you may disagree, to look at the level of a member state. Because if you look at, for example, the German car industry, it's not German at all. Uh, Many of the factories are in uh, Slovakia. Parts are coming from whatever country. The uh, software is coming from the Netherlands, etc., etc. If you buy a German BMW, your navigation system will probably be designed by a Dutch company. Anyway, you, you see the point that I'm making. Um, um, car factories move around, uh, 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 and many of them are in Spain. So if you just look at one country, uh, I think that is more and more less relevant. Uh, during the course of the crisis, lots of people, certainly if they were well-schooled, technical uh, training, uh, lots of people from Spain and Portugal went to Germany uh, to work for the German uh, economy. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure that... But perhaps your point is, at some point, there could also be a crisis in Germany. Okay, so what I always say to Germany is two things. His, his point policy is, advice to Germany is... Sorry, I think his point is that uh, growth may have reached its limits in Germany and we're relying on growth in, in the German economy when it may, have, it, may, it may reach its limits. 
and then what, what do we do? I'm not particularly concerned about reaching its limits. I think it's now at two point something. If it stays there for a longer time, that would be fine. Sorry, you can't hear me? In one sentence, please. I said if Germany, the biggest economy, is slowing down at the same time as the rest of the Eurozone economy is growing fast, the authorities might be imposing European-wide policies on the rest, which will have a very negative effect on a slowing down Germany. And what happens when the biggest economy of the Eurozone is slowed down? It's okay. a Okay. Yeah. So um, this is really if there is an adverse shock in the largest economy. So the rest of the Eurozone is doing fine and the monetary uh, policy is uh, designed to help the, the sort of the average growth in Europe, but there is an adverse shock in Germany. Um, um, I, I would argue that if only the Germans would uh, – the Germans haven't reformed since the, the Hartst uh, reforms – uh, so uh, my policy advice with them, to them would be uh, start reforming again. Your labor market, your pension system, the costs of health care, deal with it. Don't deal with it once you're in that – well, you can nod no, that's fine. Um, <laughs> don't deal with it once you're in the adverse shock, but act now. Uh, okay. The German education system is really not that great. Uh, if you look at the PISA results, sorry, did I offend German students? So, if you look at the, uh, that's why you're here. Very good point. Very good point. So, uh, um, and I've also said this uh, in Germany. You know, when I drive into Germany, and as a minister, I, I used to be driven, so I would sit in the back, read my newspaper. While reading the newspaper, I would know when we had gone across the border because the infrastructure in Germany is in a terrible state. And it's very good in, in the Netherlands. So I would be reading the newspaper, and then I'd enter Germany, and it would go like this. I couldn't read. So, but seriously, look, you can always... Perhaps the answer you're looking for is there would need to be a huge Eurozone fiscal capacity and an unemployment insurance scheme that would then help Germany. I don't think that's going to work. I think that Germany should take their responsibility. Also, Germany needs to do reforms, needs to invest in infrastructure, in education, and they are being too complacent. They have had such wonderful growth, such a wonderful growth period that they're not investing in these topics. Okay. As a matter of fact, they re reverse some of the reforms that were done before. Anyway. Let's move on. Another round of uh, questions then, please. Could we uh, take the lady in the white here in the middle, please? Could you just say who you are first? Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, firstly, for your presentation. And uh, I'm a student uh, here I'm at lost. the LSE. I'm lost. Here. Ah, you're up there. Hello. Struggling with my dissertation proposal and topic. So I would just like to ask you, what do you see as a challenge for like the expansion of the Eurozone? Do you think that further expansion could lead to fragility of new external shocks? And my following question would be coming from Croatia. Do you think that countries like that see any, you know, uh, benefits of joining the 
Eurozone at the current institutional framework as it is now. Thank you. Okay, good, thanks. Other questions? Um, could we take the gentleman here with the piece of paper, the, in fact, the LSE brochure in your hand? Um, my name is Jose. I'm a political economy student, Portuguese political economy student, and my question regards austerity. Now, uh, many have been critical of how uh, austerity not just created a big social impact, for, especially for Southern European countries, but also uh, in the fact that it was detrimental in the re aftermath recuperating from the financial crisis. One of these critics is your successor, M Professor Mario Centeno, who is going to be the head of the Eurogroup. As such, my question is, what do you think of Mario Centeno? <laughs> Very subtle. Um, okay. Uh, and can we take the lady at the front here, please, at the front? Hi, so thank you for your presentation. My name is Elena and I'm an LC alumni from the Department of, the, of International Development. My question is around the responsibility of banks as well. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense what you said about the responsibility of uh, national governments and about uh, countries to reform. I think that makes a lot of sense. But how do we ensure that uh, banks, that when they are investing in a country or when they are giving loans to a certain country, they are also assuming risks, how do we ensure that they um, have the incentive to assume responsibility if they make mistakes? So, for example, what you said about uh, the bailout that was given to banks, I guess there is a trade-off between banks that are too big to fail and that would cause a bigger problem to the economies around, around Europe and the need for them to have incentives in order to do things well and maybe not assume as many risks as they, as they did and assume their responsibility. Thank you. Okay, good, thanks. Uh, are you okay for a fourth question in this round? Oh, I need a new uh, piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you answer those, qu those questions? Let's do this first. So expansion of the expansion eurozone. Of the eurozone um, what could be uh, uh, the risks? It very much, as I said, I, um, I'm not really interested in high levels of growth if it's not on sound economic footing. We've had all that. We had very high levels of growth in a number of countries before 2008, uh, and it's caused the way growth was funded then uh, has caused huge damage uh, in our countries. Um, so the expansion needs to be solid, um, um, uh, and we need to build in. This is really economically, I think, one of the key lessons to be learned of that pre-crisis period. The uh, risks that were building up were not acknowledged, sometimes not even understood. I mean, I've spoken to bankers that, that said, you know, we didn't really understand what we were doing. So not acknowledged, not understood, not priced well, uh, not transparent, etc. And this is one of the key things that we had to learn. Many of our bank supervisors had not been uh, critical enough, had not been independent enough had been too politicized to really step in and make sure that banks would price these risks or would take provisions or would bring in new uh, capital uh, to be able to, they can absorb the risks if losses were to occur, uh, to occur. 
So that's why I'm so tough on banks. Not because I, it's not that I don't like bankers. I think they're a crucial element in in the working of the economy. Um, but w as long as we, um, as long as in the economics of banking, risks are not priced in well, we stand the risk of bringing on new uh, risks the way we had before 2008. Um, of course, a monetary policy brings risks um, because it pushes down interest rates and there's plenty of money available, drives up asset prices, um, and therefore I hope that we can also normalize the monetary uh, policy to make sure that those risks are uh, stopped uh, early. Benefits for Croatia, I think uh, that's how I understood the question. Ah, you, I thought you meant economic expansion. You mean uh, the, uh, the, uh, right? Um, as you know, there are um, sort of objective, clean-cut criteria. Uh, you have to have uh, brought down your deficit, your debt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think the history has told us that that's not good enough. Um, so what we did in the, the last two countries that joined were Latvia and Lithuania. Uh, we also really went into the banking system, for example, because uh, we had experienced the risks that it could be in the banking system. Um, so the ECB did really in-depth analysis of the banking system in these countries. A program was designed, at least measures were agreed, which they had to push through to really sort out problems in the banking system, in the financial sector. So these were issues that were beyond the simple criteria of debt and inflation and... Um, 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 uh, deficits um, and that would also have to be uh, true I think for new member states of, uh, uh, that would like to join the Eurozone uh, I think we really need to have a broad scope of is this country uh, ready to, to join uh, are all the macroeconomic imbalances dealt with are there no risks hidden etc so the trajectory will be tougher than it was in the past yeah, sorry, I misunderstood. Yeah, um, so on my colleague Mario Centeno and austerity. So the, um, uh, of course, Mario Centeno is great. Uh, I'm going to see him tomorrow. I so. say, um, but on austerity, this again, the idea is that all that the Europeans have done or the Eurogroup has done is to impose austerity. So first of all, what actually happened is that. Now, most member states are again within the rules, compliant, um, and the average deficit throughout the Eurozone is about minus one. It took us um, uh, eight years to do it, so very gradually, very gradually. If you remember, uh, lots of our countries had a massive increase in deficit going from 2008 to 2009 because the world economy basically imploded. Um, um, uh, and on top of that, we had to save our banks at a huge uh, expense for the taxpayer, so that added to uh, our deficits and debt. And then we took eight years to sort it out. But we really didn't have an option not to sort it out. It's also true for Portugal. Portugal lost access to financial markets. Private investors were no longer prepared to finance Portugal. Um, so Portugal was bailed out by the other Eurozone countries, provided with uh, loans uh, from uh, the IMF uh, and the European uh, Emergency Fund. But that's, of course, not a, sustainable uh, not a sustainable situation. No country wants to be dependent on 
um, uh, help from the IMF uh, and European funds forever. Um, so yeah, uh, sorting out fiscal problems was unfortunately part of what we had to do. Did we do it in a very rough way? I would say we did it gradually. More and more flexibility was built in. I mean, I get criticized always in the European Parliament. On the one hand, by the half of the Parliament says, look, you've been much too tough, much too much pressure on austerity. The other half of the Parliament criticizes me because we've allowed so much flexibility for countries to have another year to sort it out and another year to sort it out. And yes, we will take into consideration this aspect and that aspect. Um, so uh, the, the, the framing of austerity has been very successful. So fighting a frame is a terrible thing for a politician. I've not been successful. But if you look at what actually happened, part of it, it was inevitable. We had to sort out the fiscal situation in countries. And part of it is also that uh, we took eight years to do it. Um, so, can I just follow up on and that? By the way, the, the Portuguese, uh, the previous Portuguese government. Well, I won't say too much about Portugal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I just follow up on this uh, question? I understand um, later this evening you're going to be interviewed on the BBC Newsnight. Uh, I have it on excellent authority that one of the questions they may ask you. Uh, is whether we could expect a significant policy shift as a result of the change in president. Ah, thank you for the pre-warning. So, no, I certainly don't think uh, a major policy shift because of the change in the chairperson. Um, of course, the policy mix will change. We're in a different, completely different phase. Um, uh, we didn't uh, impose these fiscal rules because we loved them, but we c because a number of countries simply lost access to financial markets. It needed to be sorted out. Sovereign debt was exploding all over the place. It needed to be dealt with. Now we're in a different situation. Uh, by the way, I would still argue that sovereign debt in a number of countries is still far too high, so we're not there yet. Um, but we're in a different phase. Now I think there should be much more focus, and I also... Uh, say this in the Eurogroup, be careful that we're not just focusing on trying to win the previous war. Politicians always make that same mistake. They're always obsessed with winning the previous war. Too late. You should have done that 10 years ago. Concentrate on what's next. And what's next is um, lots of challenges still in Europe, some of which are economic, some of which are not, some of which are demographic, sustainability of pension system is still an issue in a lot of countries um, so let's concentrate on the things that are ahead okay. the austerity debate really is uh, behind us to a large extent there's the question about the responsibility of banks yeah so um, that responsibility um, was um, indeed uh, neglected because there was the assumption that ah, we're too big to fail anyway so we will be saved so um, my political view is that uh, no bank is too big to fail, and every bank should be able to fail. And that's why the resolution authority must go through all the banks, certainly the big ones, to make sure that they have a resolution plan. That's why the resolution authority should go through all the banks and make sure that they have enough bail-inable buffers. I won't go into the technical details of that, 
But um, now if we go into banks, we cannot be sure whether banks are able to absorb their losses if they have a major shock. Um, the new Basel III plus agreement that was recently uh, achieved um, deals with the vulnerabilities of internal models in banks. If you allow a bank to have an internal model and they can design their own model and say what policies, sorry, what portfolios are risky and what the risk weights should be, if you allow an individual bank to do that, that's very tricky. In America, they've stopped that completely. They, all the banks need to use the standard model. In Europe, we still have all these internal models. Now, at least, in, as part of Basel, there is an agreement that these internal models must have sort of minimum risk weights for certain portfolios. And this will mean, for example, for the Dutch banks, that they have to bring in quite sizable new capital uh, because they don't have enough capital given the new risk weights. So all of this work, which is still ongoing, makes our banks stronger, makes sure that the next time they're in trouble, they uh, can fail uh, in the sense that they can uh, carry their own losses and private risks are no longer transferred to the public bill, to, to the taxpayers. I think that's one of the key things that I've learned from this crisis. It's politically, economically, socially, totally injustifiable. Okay, there were loads of hands up. Do you mind if we take two quick questions? Sure. Okay, gentlemen at the very back. Uh, yeah, it needs a microphone. Uh, Isaac Arpidis, I'm a Greek uh, correspondent. I um, wonder what kind of advice you are going to give to your successor when you will meet him, I think, tomorrow, if I'm not wrong, uh, uh, for how to deal with the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of advice you are going to give to the Greek government, the Greek prime minister, from so on. Thank you very much. Okay. So, <coughs> uh, and the last uh, question. Can we take the gentleman here at the end, please? Thank you. My name is Gero from UCL. Um, suppose you could time travel, and you traveled uh, to the point in time when the Eurozone was negotiated, and you could also play Roman Emperor, which means thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, what would you do Ooh. and why? Right. That's a very difficult one. We're finishing so, on a high here. Uh, how to deal with the Greeks... Um, So it's interesting that, um, and I, I mean this very seriously, uh, yes, there are cultural differences and different political cultures, etc., in different countries, but you can't... I've learned, as I said, I work with six finance ministers from Greece, and they've, each one of them has been very different. And Samaras was a different kind of prime minister than Tsipras is, etc., so there is no answer to your question. The current people that I work with, that we worked with, uh, the finance minister, the prime minister, have been very committed, certainly after, let's say, the crisis of 2015, very committed to bring Greece back economically and politically in the heart of the Eurozone. Um, and they're very committed now. So as we speak, the parliament is looking at a major omnibus bill with lots of difficult reforms, etc. And that will be crucial uh, to, uh, for Greece to exit this summer, to exit the program. Um, 
I uh, was given by a Greek friend, name shall not be mentioned, a bottle of ouzo some time ago, and it's in my office. I will leave it unopened. The day that Greek, Greece leaves the program in August, that bottle of ouzo is going to be uh, emptied. So, um, and in one go, it's going to be. So the, the in one go. So the the second question was more uh, difficult because let's say I was in the room and I could decide go or no go. That's the question, right? So I think that big mistakes were made, lots of risks were taken, um, but I always have a lot of sort of uh, reluctance to give this hard verdict with the knowledge of hindsight. The circumstances then were historic. I mean, the, the Berlin Wall had fallen. Germany was reunited. Uh, Europe would add a whole new point after the Cold War. Can you uh, blame the politicians of that time to say we must unite, we must strengthen and integrate economically and politically? No. Uh, can you blame them that they took quite sizable risks in the way they designed it? Yes. Um, would I have given thumbs up? Yes, but with stomach ache. Yeah. <laughs> Right. You, you heard it here that the uh, retiring president of the Eurogroup uh, is uncertain as to whether to say thumbs up or thumbs down to the creation of uh, the Eurozone at the beginning. Uh, that was, uh, that's not the correct uh, summary. <laughs> uh, with some introduction, I said thumbs up because, you know, we're all politicians looking at it economically. I think big risks were taken, and that, of course, has a political impact but as a politician, if I were, would have been a leading politician in Europe at that time, in that very important polit political historical period, I would have supported the project also. Okay. So. okay. Thank you for the correction. Now, just before you um, say uh, thank you, I should explain that on these occasions the LSE normally gives a gift uh, to the speaker, and we're very grateful for you making the time to come at this point as you finish as president of the Eurogroup. And we had much discussion as to what could we possibly give you. And we decided that we would give you the same gift that we gave to people like Nelson Mandela and Bill Clinton. So, I have uh, here... Do you know what uh, it is? A prize, some, of, some of you are laughing. There. A, a prize yeah. gift previously worn by guests like Bill Clinton and Nelson Mandela, remember? The same cap. The same cap. And uh, it is this. Right. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It doesn't, it doesn't fit because... <laughs> For, for reasons I don't understand and I don't know, I have a very big hat. I think, head. You, may, okay. I think so, you may find that the adjustment is more flexible than exactly. So uh, what I need to do, I, I, I will, I will adjust it. I will adjust it and wear it. Thank okay. You. Many thanks indeed. Thank you.